I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Jobs, jobs, jobs. We spend so much of our life thinking about jobs. And I think when we think about them in light of what we know about what a job is, my guest today, Jimmy McLaughlin, is the former social advisor to the UK prime minister on business technology and entrepreneurship. And during the period where he advised the prime minister, it was a a period of momentous political change. And so he helped shape the British government's relationship with domestic and international businesses and really looked deeply at the idea of job creation and citizen engagement and so on. He witnessed the complexity of the dynamic between the politicians on one side and policymakers on one side and the industry leaders and entrepreneurs on the other side. He is very passionate about helping people understand the existing job market and uh, the jobs that are actually being created today, which are very, very different than the traditional job that has been created in the past, you know, jobs that are created by entrepreneurs or created by the internet. And he basically for years wanted to showcase what the future of economies look like with jobs that we never thought about. And so eventually as he became a stay home dad, he published or started a podcast. It's called Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. And it really looks at jobs and how jobs are evolving to try and invite guests to explore the future of economies through the prism of jobs. And uh, I've actually come across Jimmy by chance and then we reached out and we managed to connect. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation. I hope you will enjoy it too. Jobs are a big part of our life. They're worthy of a moment of slowing down and reflecting on with Jimmy McLaughlin. Honestly, it's a pleasure. Your topic is one of my favorite topics. The whole where we're going with this world that we're in. Oh man, we need all of the opinions in the world, honestly. Yeah, and look, it's really great to meet you as well because I, uh, I mean, I've listened to you so much on kind of like Stephen Bartlett's podcast and lots of different places. So it's a real honor to be sort of chatting with you. I'm- oh my God, thank you. Stephen really did something. I don't know how, but he really sort of, especially in the UK, got me to be widely heard. It's actually quite interesting. So I'm very grateful, Steve. Thank you. Yeah, he, he's. I think he's building something pretty special there. Like it's, he uh, is incredible. Did you read his book? I actually haven't yet. Oh my god, Jimmy! It is an incredible. It's actually. I'm so. I'm now chapter fourteen. Okay. And it's definitely becoming one of my favorite books of all time. And and don't be don't be fooled by the word count. Right. He has that incredible ability to distill wisdom in tiny, tiny amounts of words. It's. Um, I really recommend you read everyone listening. If you have not read uh, Happy Sexy Millionaire, Stephen Bartlett, definitely becoming one of my favorite books of all time. I must check it out then. I mean, it's, uh, I feel like, consume so much Stephen Bartlett content. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> why I haven't, I haven't exactly. yet done it. But. Exactly. 
yeah, yeah. It's really great. He's becoming a monopoly actually on our minds. Do you think that we should worry about this? <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> yeah. But but Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. I know that you your life changed a lot. And I and I want to start from your life because I think from being in the prime minister's office to being a full-time dad, I want to talk about that part in the prime minister's office a lot, actually, <laughs> because it's a very interesting topic. But I do want to talk about the full-time dad thing, because it's actually a concept that I really, really love. I love those who take that decision to get their priority correctly aligned. So tell me about that bit. What happened? What made you take that choice? Well, I mean, you, you say it was a choice that I made, but it was it was sort of slightly forced on by the pandemic. So to to go to the summer of 2019, I'd been advising Theresa May as the UK Prime Minister. And then there was the change of Prime Ministers and Boris Johnson came in and he sort of said to me, yeah, will you stick on, help me? And I said, well, look, I will do for a transitional period, but we've got this baby coming in the autumn and I just don't think I'm going to be able to be a good special advisor, colloquially known as SPAD, Okay, and a good dad at the same time. I just don't think it's going to going to work. But I'll I'll do the transition bit for you. So I did that, then left number ten, and it was partly because I wanted to spend a bit more time with my baby daughter. It was also because I'd done three years and I was pretty burnt out, frankly. And what then sort of happened was I was trying to explore what to do next. I sort of thought that it would, as a former business entrepreneurship advisor, it wouldn't be too difficult and something would just kind of work itself out how wrong I was. As part of that journey, we went off to Stanford and studied out in California. The whole family went out there and I did one of their exec ed courses. We came back in March 2020, and I'm sure everyone remembers March 2020, but the pandemic really gripped hold, and we landed back at a deserted Heathrow, and my wife is a doctor, and so she said, look, I think I need oh. to I need to go and do my bit for the pandemic. She emailed, and we said, oh, well, yeah, maybe you'll go back in a couple of a month, two months, and they were like, can you come back next week? And so <laughs> the decision to become a stay-at-home dad and very much stay-at-home, as it turned out, yeah. was not a sort of decision that I guess I took, really, but was, was forced on me. But it's been amazing, and it was incredible to kind of spend that much time with my baby daughter. And I kind of... I feel a much better father as a, as a result of it. And there are... Lots of reflections I, I have on that time and the way it's changed. And we're just expecting our, our second daughter to arrive soon. And I am already thinking, well, how can I make sure that I repeat that that experience and that bonding time that we had together? Because it was um, it was incredibly special. And yeah, it really is amazing. And I think it, it also leads to a, and I know you've been through this, Mo, but it's, it leads to a better balance in the family slightly as well, which has been quite important. And it's just something that I want to repeat. I don't mean to be controversial, but it's not every man's decision. And those of us that are my age have been sort of conditioned growing up that this is not the responsibility of a man. No, let me put it this way. At least it's not the best skill of a man to be the primary caretaker of a child. And, and I think this conditioning in our modern world and in the way the world is changing needs to be reset somehow. 
So would you be able to share your reflections? I mean, does it come naturally to you? Does it affect your sort of masculinity at home? Do you do you feel you're capable of giving the kids what they need? How does it work, the whole experience? I think the point you make, I think, is, is a good one. And I do see it as part of what I'm trying to do is talk to other men about how they should do it. Because... The truth is for that you've given these two weeks generally in the UK and people take them often very early doors, which is important. But actually, as a man at that point, you often can't be that much help apart from sort of changing nappies and getting everything for the wife. You have this sense of feeling of complete uselessness. But actually, <laughs> as this sort of as it goes on, you can do more and so on. And I think I was very lucky at when the sort of decision was taken for me at, at six months, because actually by then I think the roles are, are much more equal depending on kind of breastfeeding and so on and what people choose to do around that, which is also can be quite a controversial topic as well. Yeah. But I, I think I found it quite empowering. I mean, it's been a whole sort of a new challenge and so on. And it's funny, I, heard the other day somebody say i'm not ready to start a family and i just thought no one ever is like <laughs> exactly. it's, 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 you've just kind of got to deal with it and i do think it's sort of you're given all this advice like in the run-up to it and so on and it's very it can be quite overwhelming and i remember getting very very worried about sort of spilling hot tea over my daughter because you sort of get a we drink a lot of tea in our house and we were told this was one of the big <laughs> the big kind of no-nos and actually it's just so we've bought up children for thousands and thousands of years actually there is we talk about a maternal instinct but there is actually a paternal instinct there as well i think and it is i have found it a a wonderful experience it's definitely hard at points like i mean let's not kind of beat around that but it's it's just been the most most marvelous thing to do and i would encourage any man to try and take at least a period of, of three months oh absolutely with it. Absolutely. I mean, someone like me, of course, who has lived a life where I was very busy and out in the world and focusing on my career, while my amazing, amazing ex, really, literally, who's a brilliant computer scientist, the minute Ali showed up in the world, said, okay, this little crumbly thing is my priority. I'm going to give him the attention and the time. Looking back at it, I definitely could have spent more time. And I definitely, I think when they just peeked into their teens, which I think was my sweet spot really, because I'm a cerebral kind of logical and connecting kind of person. I have to say, I was so, so scared when they were young because, you know, those little bones, I just am clumsy with my <laughs> hands, if you want. Or at least I thought I was clumsy with my hand. Turns out I wasn't actually at all. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but the trick is, you know, connecting at that level. I started in their teens, but I think every father, you would lose out on an amazing experience if you don't actually spend time deeply, deeply connecting at every level. And I think being responsible as a dad is, requires you to do this. And I agree. And I think it's kind of on the man to put the time in to do that because the bond between a mother and child is always going to be intense and exists kind of nine months before you're kind of you know sort of really there and present and so you know men should think of themselves as kind of being behind the curve when it comes to building mm. relationships with their children and, and they have to put a bit more um a bit more time into it i think is a, is a good way of 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 looking at it 
Is there is there a way to be a stay home dad but still be the dad and not the mom? Good question. I think the fact that it was just me. It's funny, Mo. I've never really thought about it like this, but it makes you take on more responsibility. If you're a stay-at-home dad with a stay-at-home mum for a period, there is a bit of a default there of of kind of letting the mother take everything on. Whereas when it's just you and her, you've got to do it. And doing it for four days at a time is different to just occasionally doing it for an afternoon or an evening. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, I think the trick here is, A, and my daughter and I are so close. And, and I think there is always this father-daughter relationship that is very special. But I'm going to wait and see when your daughter is older, because I think you could beat me on that, which, <laughs> which I, you know, see. it's really... It <laughs> will always be the way, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so let, let's get into business. Thank you very much for sharing so openly. But you can see here that the roles are changing so much in our world. So the idea of our careers, which used to be very linear and very predictable, and they were siloed, if you want, where the man had a career, the woman had a different career, the father had a career, the, woman, the mother had a different career, and so on and so forth. I think this is all crumbling. And the future of jobs, in my view, which is definitely an area that you're an expert at, is confusing to say the least. <laughs> Tell me your views of this. I mean, are there like clear sort of posts that, I don't know what you call them, like uh, light posts, like um, markers that we need to observe in terms of what's happening for jobs globally? Yeah. So I think to segue on that, what happened was I was then exploring my what to do next. I was at home with my daughter. We would listen to a lot of audio because I didn't want to doom scroll at the time because it was the worst doom scrolling. And we listened to a lot of podcasts and I started my podcast, Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Because I was one of the things when I was in Downing Street was that, you know, we'd get a lot of big high street closures like Debenhams in the UK would call me as the business advisor to the prime minister and say, we're going to make this announcement this morning. Can you let people know? When I be my responsibility to then go in and tell the prime minister this at the 8am meeting and her response would be, but, but we're at record high employment. Where are all these jobs coming from? And it's entrepreneurs sort of hiring a few people each day. And, and that never makes headlines, of course. And so that was where I part of the idea for the podcast came from. And we thought this was going to be this unemployment challenge. And so I was able to text a few people and, and throw this podcast together, partly, I guess, to learn for myself about these jobs and maybe work out what I was going to do next. But there was one of the things that struck me, you know, we've done sort of 50 episodes now, is that there are specific jobs of the future that didn't exist, sort of data scientists, software engineers, machine learning, and so on. But we can also slightly overcomplicate it. Business is fundamentally the, is the same as it has always been, which is you need to be able to create a product or a service that you can sell for more than you cost you to create it. And the challenges that have changed about that are the tools that we use. So, you know, marketeers and digital marketeers is this huge kind of area of growth in kind of jobs of the of the future. But it's just the tools are different. You've always had to get your product in front of people and persuade them to buy it. So we can sometimes sort of, I think, over 
overthink jobs of the future a little bit has been one of my sort of big reflections of the podcast. And like I said, I thought the pandemic was going to lead to this huge unemployment surge. And actually, we now sit in the UK at even higher employment than we did before the pandemic. It's quite remarkable. How did that happen? I, I always thought we were going to hit a disaster of some sort. I mean, look, I think in the UK there, there has been definitely some demographic changes in terms of Brexit and people being here has been a, a mm. part of a challenge around that. But I think ultimately, I also think it's to this balance that you say, I, I think people are working a bit more flexibly. I think there's a lot more people kind of working four day weeks and so on and have used the pandemic as a reflection of that. So I think you're seeing all these different changes in the economy. And, and your point about a linear line is true as well in terms of I think people are taking breaks. There's this whole kind of the great resignation happening at the moment as people think, well, actually, I can take six months and go and travel the world and or go and do some kind of executive education course. Why would I not do that? And like you say, when you were in your kind of formative years in your 20s, that would have would have just been absolutely unheard of for anyone to do that. Let's go back a, a little bit to the reinvention of jobs, if you want. So I, I lived through one cycle when information technology was really starting to gain momentum, if you want. So when I started working at IBM, I must have been 21 or something. I was the first one in my family. At the time, there were only truly three big players in technology in Egypt. You know, it was IBM, ICL, a British company, and, and NCR at the time. And, you know, it was not a job that was even on the list of jobs that my brothers, just five and six years older than I, expected to actually exist. And there was a ton of talk about how technology was going to make our jobs obsolete. And yet it did make some jobs obsolete, or at least it morphed some jobs. So when I started at IBM, there was a massive room of typists. There was a job called typist and you would go to them and just sort of tell them what the proposal should be. And they would sit on a typewriter. IBM made typewriters, I think for a while in their life. And in my, you know, I joined in 1990, believe it or not in Egypt, we still had that. And so, you know, that job I think is obsolete. There is either now an AI that you can dictate to, or you type yourself. But there are other jobs that just morphed, like an accountant started to use tools to be an accountant, right? Rather than keep a general ledger with, with our own handwriting. So what's happening here? I mean, are jobs going to disappear? Are jobs going to morph? Are we going to have more jobs, less jobs, less hours? What's going to happen? Well, I think we're going to have, I think that's a good point. More job, less hours could be quite a good way of looking at it. I think there's a huge sort of, there's quite a lot of passion projects that people are able to pursue and so forth. In fact, the phone call I had just before this was with somebody who writes about Liverpool Football Club. And he's made a full-time job now out of writing about Liverpool Football Club. But he also has 12 employees and about 40 sort of contributors to the website and the podcast. It's called the Anfield Wrap. And so the 40 contributors, you know, not paid sort of huge amounts, sort of 200 pounds for a couple of pieces a month or something, right? So it's not enough to kind of live off, but that's a pretty nice supplementary income to be writing about your club as well. And I just thought that was just such an incredible story of the way that the kind of modern economy is, is growing. And, and no one writes about those 
dozen people that are now employed by something that just exists on the internet in terms of the Anfield rap. And I was quite taken by that that story. And then, you know, other people that have appeared on my podcast, like Ben Francis of Gymshark, this is a sort of conditioning company. And so it's not just fitness and sport. It specifically started as conditioning. So it's kind of weightlifting. Now, even when I was growing up, weights weren't really a thing that people did. And Ben has now built a team of almost a thousand people in the West Midlands over the last 10 years that design clothes for this. And they're expanding now, right? They are becoming a bigger fitness brand and, and so on. But that was the niche that started because him and his mates were going to the gym quite a lot and they didn't have gear that they wanted to wear. And the company is now valued at over a billion and so forth. And it's an amazing story. And not everyone will do that that makes kind of gym wear on the side and Ben's very open about how he had a lot of failures before that one as well but I just think that those kind of stories demonstrate about the kind of passion economy if you will and the sort of the future of these morphing of jobs and and the difference particularly with with entrepreneurship now is that people can can scale things on the side much more 15 years ago if you wanted to start a business you had to stop your paid job on the Friday and then you started the business on a Monday now it's possible to kind of dial things up and down and see if you've really got something and I think that's that's incredibly um, incredibly exciting do those people count I mean so I do six jobs right does that mean I'm registered in the unemployment registers of the government as six employees or as one or as none at all because all of them I do for myself really yeah, well, I think it's a real challenge how you kind of, how the government keeps up on this. Partly the tax implications are quite hard as well. I know Treasury used to used to worry about this a lot from my time in government in terms of self-employed people and so on. What is tax? I live in Dubai. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I had, to, I had to push that in. <laughs> but it's, I think it's, a, yeah, a real challenge about how do you kind of get the statistics for these things? Because fundamentally, there's a lot of traditional jobs that are also growing. There's a sort of tendency to say, talk about truck drivers, for example, huge challenge in the truck driving industry at the moment. Yeah. Everyone is yeah. over the age of 50. And turns out we need quite a lot of these people at the moment and that is one of the greatest kind of shortages that we have is that particularly that around that kind of last mile delivery side of things as well correct yeah and very expensive as well i mean it's it's quite interesting i was thinking about ali my son the other day because bungie which is one of the best game developers i relate to has released the latest halo and I'm, I'm a very serious Halo player and it's really a demand, a very demanding game. It, it's so good, but it's also a lot more than the previous ones, right? And I was thinking I should probably record some videos to help gamers that are lost in the game because there are interesting tricks in there. And it just hit me so hard that if Ali was still alive, that would definitely have been his job. And it is an interesting job. It's a demanding job. It's about something that he would have been very passionate about. He would probably have been on Twitch 
gaming and, and talking to others because he was so good at inspiring others and writing reviews or recording videos and making, I think if you're a really, really good Halo player or any kind of game player and you put a video on YouTube that gets a million views or whatever, that's a few hundred dollars of advertising a month. And if you have a few of those, then you're making good money. And of course, if you had told that to my dad, who, you know, <laughs> who believed, I mean, rightly so at the time when I was growing up in Egypt, you needed to be a doctor or an engineer because otherwise the rest of the jobs didn't really have a future, if you want. They were jobs, but they were not like the jobs. And if you had told him, hey, my career is I'm going to be an influencer that plays games on Twitch or whatever, you wouldn't have even imagined that this was going to be a job in the future, right? Yeah, it's totally true. And it's, I think it's a real challenge to kind of explain to policymakers about this. I saw a statistic the other day, I can't quite remember it, but it's, it's something like 40% of people that don't go to university want to kind of be influencers. And there's this <laughs> sort of, like, yes. it's, it's this kind of like, and there's a very, there can be a bit of a dismissive attitude kind of amongst the, the elites about influencers and so on. And I, I understand where a lot of that comes from, but there is some, like you say, some of this stuff is hard work and, and the kind of content creation. Oh, yeah. And actually when we talk about influencers, what we sort of mean is entertainers and everyone's <laughs> always wanted to be an entertainer, right? Like, there's always been that kind of, and that side of the economy, the creative industry side growing hugely. UK is a real kind of specialist at it in terms of that high level content creation. And so I think there's something there and to influence properly, like you need to be, you need to be an authority on a topic and whether that's call of duty or whether that's football manager or jobs of the future, you know, you sort of need to do work and understand these these things so i think it's um i think it's quite exciting that kind of that creator economy side of things is really exciting in some ways yeah yeah i mean it's quite interesting when you think that 40 percent are influencers how confused the 60 percent are right it's like it's like, it's like well, who exactly do we follow and why are we not influencing anyone i think the truth though is that it actually is quite interesting when i worked in my early years at Google, there was um, a very famous book that actually was behind the entire growth of the internet, which was called The Long Tail, if you remember that. And, and the idea that originally, think of books, for example, if you lived in the economy where your only access to books was the corner store or at best, you know, a big Borders or Barnes & Noble or whatever, I don't know the brands in the UK, they can at most store, what, 10,000 books? So basically all all of the other books, I think the US prints 60,000 books a year now, all of the other books are not even displayed. And because now you can put those online, everyone, everyone will have some kind of a following out of 7 billion people. It's not unlikely that you're going to find 10, 15,000 people interested in your topic, right? And 10 to 15,000 people is, is a good business for anyone. And interestingly, when you talk about jobs of the future, and a podcast around that is actually quite an interesting topic. Yeah, I think so. I think that's one of the big challenges, though, I think for um, young people is is there is such a massive content and it's shifted so much in 15 years. Sort of what we're trying to build with Jimmy's Jobs is kind of an economist for a modern generation because mm. that's where I got all my 
economics and business information pretty much from in my sort of late teen early 20s because that's sort of all there really was but now you know we were talking about people who follow this podcast or what Stephen Bartlett's doing there's so much kind of inspiration out there which is great but it can be quite difficult particularly when you're young to learn all of this I mean just to can't resist being the podcast host myself for a second mode but if you were if you we're recording this in at the start of 2022 if you were 22 in 22 where do you think you'd be sort of planning your career knowing all that you know now knowing all that i would know now yeah i wouldn't think about career at all who gives a damn man i mean it's a big lie don't you think i think the biggest thing for me was a realization that i never needed any of what i chased i think this is truly truly big for me and i stephen bartlett again today's the whole conversation is about <laughs> stephen but he's quite spot on when he talks about they always tell you to do things that you love i actually preach to people and say do things that you love he also says but do things that you're good at and I think the trick is, my theory, if you want, is that if you do something that you love, you're going to do so much of it that you're going to spend your 10,000 hours on it. And so you will become very good at it. But it's also easier to do something that you love and are a little reasonably good at, because then it becomes so much easier and more fun without frustration to do your 10,000 hours and then become one of the best in the world at it. And yeah, so what would I do? I'm but what's the separation between doing what you love and what you're good at? Because I found if I'm good at it, I love it generally. It's not always true, but it's, there's a very strong Venn diagram there. Is it really? So I'm, I'm a very, very serious businessman. I spent 28, maybe 30 years of my life doing that. I rarely ever lost a deal, rarely ever. I only missed one quarter in my life. As a businessman, I'm really good at it. But I have to question in the current phase of my life, that whole concept of business, at least in its current format. And so do I enjoy the wonderful connection with the client and the conversation and the, the idea of finding a solution that actually helps them and serves them? And I enjoy that, but do I want to be a businessman? Do I love, I mean, can someone love accounting? I don't know if you can do that at all, right? It's not lovable by nature. Accounting is probably the one topic that I miserably failed when I was doing my MBA. It's just like, why are we doing everything the opposite of what it should be done? Anyway, I mean, think about that. You can be an incredibly good accountant, but you can't really love it. Differently than being a dancer, right? You cannot be a good dancer unless you really love it. Yes. Yes. Well, that's fortunate for me. <laughs> because <laughs> you love jobs <laughs> I love jobs exactly not dancing can I take you into one area that is highly controversial I don't know if you I probably didn't have the chance to read my second book about artificial intelligence and the role of humanity in, in the age of artificial intelligence but I have no doubt in my mind that there will be very few jobs left in the next 25 years that we will be good at we as humanity in general, even being a podcast host, I tend to believe that in the next 10 years, and it's definitely my intention, that I will be assisted by a very intelligent AI to know you better and to you know understand your style better. And so I can become a better podcast host. 
But eventually, and there are experiments out there where you can actually point an AI at slow-mo and it will listen to all of my episodes. So far, I think we're now at 175 episodes and it will say, okay, so this Mo guy, this is his voice, this is his tonality, this is his style. These are his speech impediments and could probably do a much better job than Mo at slow-mo. And I, I can't even think of a job that would remain. I can't think of a job that we would do better than the machines. What would happen then? I think there will be, though. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm not sure I totally agree with you on this. You see, I, I know where you're coming from and I see it. But I think skills like empathy and understanding different cultures and so on will still be quite hard for the machines to do. That being said, I know I know the podcast host stuff you're referring to, some of the writing now that AI can do when it takes all of what you've done is pretty exceptional and all the things around GPT-3 and so on is like pretty extraordinary some of this stuff and I think it's a real challenge for for policymakers about how we make sure that people benefit from AI and that we can try and make try and make as many people benefit as much as possible from it so i think there will be because i still think that there i believe that a lot can be done by ai but people still want that human connection but it's getting better i called sky the other day about a problem and it it took me a couple of minutes to realize that i was speaking to a ai robot yeah yeah so it's like and i'm pretty I'd like to think I was pretty switched on, but it took me quite a while. And I think that's going to be a, um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. It really is. I mean, of course, when I used to work at Google and I was a big part of what we were doing with AI, the whole concept of actually, why would you even call Sky at all? Your AI should call their AI. And instead of waiting on the line for two and a half minutes or 25 minutes, they can just get the whole thing done in two and a half microseconds and poof, your service is back on and life is working, right? And it's quite interesting where we go with this because I know it's very philosophical and I have no evidence to prove this, but my view is that we will, you talk about the future of jobs. If you actually go really, really far back about the history of jobs, I think there were times where humanity had no jobs at all. There was nothing called a job. A job was not one of the early words that Adam and Eve exchanged. Okay. Uh, it came, <laughs> it came later in the history of humanity and, and we lived, right? Of course, it wasn't the easiest life, but that wasn't because of the absence of jobs. And is there a time in the future where we actually just go back to, as I say in my, in, in scary smart, you know, we can, you can walk to a tree and pick an apple and then walk to another tree and pick an iPhone. And none of it is even made by a human anymore. I think that's true. And, and all the work that you do around happiness and, and so on is, I find so inspiring because it's, you know, we chase so many things and society sort of teaches us to, to want things. And, and actually, so often when you get them, you don't want to, it doesn't give you the fulfillment that you, you think that you want. And, and also, I think one of the, one of the things about, life i've noticed since becoming a father and stuff is that the things that you want change and that's okay you know it's sort of yeah you know, i remember when i left number 10 i thought that was sort of not all i'd ever wanted to do but it was it was a huge kind of thing that i wanted to do and I remember thinking gosh this is 
But life had changed and being able to recognise that I think is so important. I also think the point you make around, well, what is it? what is a job um, and trying to kind of <laughs> exactly. like sort of redefine that is quite challenge as well. Yeah. I mean, if you ask me back in 2014, right before Ali left our world, I wouldn't have ever thought of myself as a writer. I mean, now I just, it feeds my soul. Really. It really does. And, and I can't think of myself as anything else, which is, it's quite shocking because by, by then I had spent maybe 20 years of my life doing that business thing. And then suddenly I'm like, Oh, don't like that. You know, yeah. don't want to do, don't want to do that. You know, I like this typing thing. This typing thing is just, it's more like me, I think. But it's that, it's how you convey, I think, that identity and, you know, how you describe yourself, be it on your Twitter bio or LinkedIn or, or so on, is quite powerful because it's sort of, I think that's a real challenge. Like, how how do people do that? Because we're not fitting into simple boxes anymore. Yeah. It's, it's not that yeah. straightforward. I mean, in a very interesting way, I think I've I've been so fortunate to be able to do stuff just because I want to do it. I mean, in a very interesting way, I honestly and truly, I don't write for anyone. I write for me. And it's quite shocking, but around, so 150% of what I write is never published. So I, if I write two and a half books, only one will be published. And there are times when I'm writing full chapters and adding illustrations to them and really doing all of the work, knowing full heartedly that they will never be published. And it's just, a, I think it's the part of me that is completely in flow. Like I don't really think about the result at all. It's, I just wake up in the morning and I'm like, whoops, okay, love and relationships. I need to write about that. I really need to write about that. What do you know about that? I'm not even doing that well on it, right? But I just really... I sit down and I write and it's just incredible really. And I think if, if jobs are morphing in that direction, especially with generation Z, where they actually do stuff that they enjoy, they stuff that they, as you rightly said, are experts on, which you and I with our slightly grayish hair don't think is even a job. This is where the future is going. I think that's, that's true. I agree. And I think that part of it is that we, particularly in the, in the Western world, there's a, there's a lot of abundance of, of things. And it's much, property is extraordinarily expensive and out of reach for a lot of people. But everything, a lot of the other things that you want in life can actually be, be accessed quite, quite simply and straightforwardly for some of that. And I think that's a big, a big kind of shift change in terms of the crumbling that you talked about at the beginning is, um, is quite important to to notice that and so on I, I think it's it's it is an incredibly exciting time to be a young person and there's so many options out there but it must feel all rather overwhelming and the advent of social media and people often showing their their best selves and their perfect lives on on instagram and so on i think it's quite hard when you're trying to work out the world Absolutely. So what would your advice be? I mean, first of all, what would your advice be to a young person going into the job market? But what would your advice be for their parents now that you're yes. raising your daughter? What would you tell her when it comes to doing something in life? 
I'm always intrigued about Jimmy's Jobs listeners' figures because it's quite a lot of over 50s listen. And I often think that's probably parents trying to help kids at teenage and in their 20s about careers of the future. There's times when I feel about in terms of my daughter is that it's part of the reason I do the podcast. My father was a politician and um, my mum was in that world as well. So therefore that's what we talked about. And therefore I enjoyed it at school. And, you know, I sort of, to your point about being good and loving something, it kind of built up this momentum in itself. And I, um, I then became more interested in the business and entrepreneurship. And I was able to fuse those worlds by being, you know, entrepreneurship advisor to the, to the prime minister. And, I sometimes think, well, I didn't really have much else career guidance about what to what to do, really, because prior to being a politician, he was a coal miner. So he didn't have sort of that much experience of kind of white collar jobs and so on. And so sometimes part of the reason I think I do the podcast is because it gives me this wonderful array of, of everything that's happening in the, the modern economy. And it will help me be kind of a better careers advisor to my kids not that you necessarily kids will listen to you at those years so I'm fully I'm fully prepared for that as well um, but I think it's I think it's important to do something that you can have credibility for I think that makes that is hugely important in the first part of your early career but finding finding something that you love you'll never end up kind of working a day in your life anyway they say and that, that would be it. I mean, I think the creative industries is so, so phenomenally exciting. I mean, yeah, we had Rishi Sunak, UK Chancellor, on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he was saying if he was starting his career now, he, that's where he'd look, which I thought was pretty incredible for somebody who'd been an investment <laughs> banker, like, as the start. So, yeah, that would be, um, I think, explore. I think that's the thing, Mo, that you speak about so passionately. It's just, just explore and try things. I love that. And don't be... Don't be worried about failing and what people think and so on. It's, it's yeah. yeah. I think that's the best advice. I think that people should learn instead of teaching people the proper decision-making analytical approach to things. I think people should learn the skill of finding out if something doesn't fit after you've tried it a tiny bit, right? And that applies to jobs, to education, to relationships, to dating, to anything really. It's like, it's absolutely okay to go on a first date. Don't get married and then go like, oops, she's not the right person. And I think that the idea of recognizing, realizing that we actually can explore. And as long as the cost of exploration is not too high, you're in a good place. And then find out, find out the world is full of options and interestingly full of unexplored options still. Things that people have not found out about still so far. Exactly. I think Jeff Bezos calls it wondering and wandering and you know it's i, I yeah. think that's quite a good way of of putting it because i remember when i came out at number 10 yeah i felt quite a bit of pressure to sort of what was i going to do next and and so on and it took me a heck of a long time to kind of work it all out but i do remember in that period of thinking oh yeah it's three four months since i left you know where am i going what am i doing and it's um it's quite hard that but yeah just exploring and seeing what you enjoy is is a huge thing because it's again that changes over over time as well right yeah i totally agree yeah 
So I think we should leave everyone with that. Jimmy, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for your time and for the very entertaining conversation. And I think you're in the creative industry for sure, even though you, <laughs> <Exactly>. talk, about, <laughs> even though you talk about jobs. I think that, you know, leaving people with the idea of explore is truly, truly, I, in a world that's changing so much, allow yourself the opportunity to explore new things. And just like Jimmy said earlier, you don't have to leave your job to do any of that anymore. You can probably add a couple of hours at the end of an evening, you know, and just find out if you want to be a videographer or if you want to be a blogger, if you want to be whatever. There is so much out there that you can do and so much that hasn't been done yet that will be doable. And I think that's a wonderful place to be. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mo. It's been brilliant. And for all of you listening, uh, I, I think uh, Jimmy and I connected the minute we met. So it was fun for me. I hope it was as fun for you. If you enjoyed this conversation, I, as always, will ask you to please help me push uh, Slow Mo forward. If you have not already rated the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts, please do that. Share it with your friends. Tell those that you love about it. And keep finding me on social media and tell me what you want me to do, please. I was wondering recently what Slow Mo was about and I actually don't know. So I, I just I just invite wonderful humans to discuss interesting topics that require us to slow down and reflect upon. So if you want me to slow down and reflect upon a topic, please find me on social media and tell me what you would like me to discuss or a guest that you have in mind. Meanwhile, this time of the year, as we are approaching the end of January, is normally the beginning of the most stressful part of my year because you start to build momentum as the year starts and and then you get into February and everything is at full speed and you realize you were not able to do all of this at the same time. So I ask you to please do what I'm doing, regardless of how busy you've made yourself so far, please do take a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.